So we're back in Corinthians again. Um, for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been going through Corinthians on a, on a kind of point-by-point basis. So very slowly, we've been here for absolutely ages, but it's been really good just instead of doing some of the breadth of the word to, to try and drill in and draw out some of the, the depth, because there's such depth in the word of God. It is remarkable. And I think we're starting to see some of that as we preach through this wonderful book of Corinthians, um, which, if I just remind you, was to a city not dissimilar to our city, wasn't it? It was a coastal city, a trading city, a city of recovery, a multicultural city, and to a church that had been around for about the same time as Freedom Church. So we've been going about two years now in Corinth. They've been going about two years. But thankfully for Freedom Church, not thankfully for Corinth, they'd hit some incredible troubles, some divisions, some strife. Things were starting to break down. Things were starting to corrode and destroy the good thing that God had started there. And so, actually, what we can learn from this is Paul writes to them to challenge and address and restore some of this stuff. We can learn and draw some great lessons on how to protect the good thing that God has started here in Freedom Church. If we take on the lessons of 1 Corinthians, so that's what we're trying to do as we go through. We're trying to look at what Paul was talking about, take on his teaching, draw it in, soak in it, and take it on as a church so that we can continue to shine bright with the gospel and grow in shining bright with the gospel in this city of Liverpool, in this wonderful place. So today we are on to, we're on to chapter 3, at the very beginning of chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles with you, it's chapter 3, 1 to 9. And this is from the New International Versions. Version 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. But as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. This guy, David Brainard, is by far one of my favourite missionaries that I've read about today. Um, In his short life, he had one of the most remarkable conversions to where he just experienced the glory of God and it ruined him for everything else, just as he was out walking. It's one of the most amazing 
um, descriptions in his life, and I would urge you to read it, of what it is like to come face to face in this life with the living God. And it just waters my mouth for heaven every time I read it. And he went on to be a missionary to the Native American Indians and see some incredible things. The Spirit used him remarkably as he preached out there to move into the American Indian communities that did not know Jesus. And he saw some wonderful stories of salvation and redemption out there. But his story is very much a story of two halves. In his very short life, this Man didn't have a great start. After he's experienced this wonderful saving grace, he was actually still quite an arrogant man. He spoke with a rashness and a pride and was critical of others that he didn't agree with. To their face and behind their back. And this got him in loads of trouble in his younger life. Ultimately, As a result of this rashness, of this poor character, he was kicked out of Yale University where he'd gone to study ministry. Because he was unwilling to apologise for insulting one of his tutors and criticising the validity of his tutor's faith. This was massive public disgrace at this time, to be kicked out of university for being rude. And overall, you could say the first Part of his Christian walk was defined by him being a bit of a man-child. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Chris Butland was not the uh, target this week. I don't know. Do you think there's a likeness there? I think. No. No. All right. It's not. A, it's not an attack on your character, guy. It's, it's just that you look like a baby with a beard. But later, the the second half of his life, the second half of his life, this young, arrogant man was seemingly completely changed. And he wrote passages about himself like this in his personal diary. Listen to this. I had a considerable sense of my helplessness and inability today. Saw that I must depend on God for all I want. As I went to preach today, trembling, as I frequently do, under a sense of my insufficiency to do anything for the cause of God, I scarce ever preach without first having inward trial and fears. But I thank God for these trials, because they humble me. Remarkable. And others, like Jonathan Edwards, the great American revivalist, wrote about his unfaltering, this guy, David Brainard's unfaltering Christian character in his later years. The way he endured trial and criticism patiently, always with love. He had matured wonderfully in God, which allowed God to display his grace through him amazingly. And he himself wrote of the shame he felt for his behaviour in his younger years. And he did apologise publicly eventually for the man, for and to the man he had insulted. But his diary reveals he never quite got over the heartache he had caused himself and others. Now he wished he had grown up sooner so that he would have avoided the pain at Yale 
university. And do you know, this morning, had he taken on Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, he may just have avoided the painful pitfalls of Christian infancy. Because the heart of this passage that we're reading this morning is a great cry from the apostle to grow up. To grow up. That's what he's challenging everyone who reads this to do. He's saying grow up. To exchange the human for the heavenly, the lower for the higher. Not to remain in a state of Christian infancy, but to become mature. And as we're going to find out this morning as we go through this passage, this is such a crucial lesson from Paul. Because so many of the problems that the Corinthian church were facing could have been avoided just as David Brainard's problems could have been avoided if they had done this. So should we look through it? So this passage starts with a parental scolding. Its tone is actually quite hard to the church at Corinth. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. You are still not ready. You are still worldly. Here, Paul calls them mere infants in Christ. What does he mean by this? Well, he's not talking about their age. There are all sorts of ages in this church. And he wasn't talking about the length of time even that they'd been Christians. He's talking about the extent to which their thinking had been transformed by the gospel. The infancy he's talking about is an infancy of their minds and the way they think about the world. So here Paul says that they had not grasped the implications of some of the simplest matters of Christ and the Spirit's teaching. They had stayed on baby milk, not grown-up meat of the gospel. They had become Christians, yes, But like Brainerd, they had kept their thinking at a worldly, lower level of what was important. Rather than having their thinking transformed by the heavenly example and spirit of Christ. You know, some people say you have to switch off your thinking, don't they, to be a Christian. It's all about the spirit, man. It's all about the spirit. Or other people think that thinking in Christianity is reserved for scholars and geniuses and universities. Paul doesn't leave us with the possibility of either of these conclusions. For Paul, thinking and learning about Christ is an essential part in life because it's the way that we mature. By meditating on his word, by being with his spirit, by studying scripture. These are the ways that Christian maturity and growth come about. 
It's the way as sons we sit at our father's feet and listen to his teaching and what he has to say to us. It's the way that we replace all of the things that the world holds dear, all of the things that the world says with the things that the world, that Christ holds dear. So Paul opens this passage with a loving scold that the Corinthians had not done this. They were still immature in the thinking of heaven. And as such, they were still acting in a worldly way. Then he goes on. Paul is an arguer. He argues in line by line. And here he goes on to the evidence for his scold. For the, since there is jealousy and quarrelling amongst you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human beings? So Paul here highlights three clear outward behavioural marks to support his claim that they are still infants. That they were thinking like mere men with the same wisdom and understanding of the world around them. Each of which he has already touched upon, actually, in the weeks before. What does, he, what does he touch upon here? Firstly, jealousy. He says there's jealousy in the church. That they were looking at one another and what other people had with envy in their hearts. Their position, their gifts, their family. They did not like that others had it and they were unhappy that they did not. Bitterness had grown up in them. Second, he says, there was quarrelling in the church. There was fighting. Born out, again, of bitterness, trying to get one up on each other, trying to win an argument over loving people. This was all visible in the church. And here, core issue in Corinth resurfaces here. There was the issue that they were arguing over which leader was the best. One was following one man, one was following another, and it had caused this division in the church. And he's saying, look, these are outward signs that your thinking has not been transformed. For Paul, the root issue behind all of these surface issues was this, that the church in Corinth had not allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to affect their thinking about Christ, to move their thinking upward from human to heavenly. Think about it with me. All of these things in some way show that they had not thought deeply enough about the gospel of Christ and had their thinking matured. That they were still thinking human thoughts. So jealousy is born out of worldly thinking that things or gifts or positions that people have means that someone is better than another. More favoured by God or more successful where jealousy comes from and the gospel says to each one of us the measure of God's love for you is that he sent his son to die for you his most precious thing not what we have or the tasks he has given us and now you have the most precious thing God has to give regardless of any worldly wealth position title or achievement a restored unbreakable relationship 
with the living God through his son. Quarrelling is born out of human pride. A belief that no one should walk over us. That winning is more important than relationship. Or that to be wrong, to wrong, be wrong is weakness. The gospel says, God didn't care about winning the argument. He just wanted to have a relationship. And the grace he has shown us to restore that relationship upon the cross, even when we had sinned against him, should humble us in every situation. Do you see? The gospel changes our thinking as we think about it deeply. And what about this one? Following and arguing over who you follow. This is mistakes and it misses the fact that any leader in Christ is just like you. In that no matter how big the stage, how bright the lights, how passionate the preaching, they are just sinners who needed saving by the cross, whom Christ has given a task of service to. There is only one saviour. And it will never be Matt Ashworth, nor Chris Butland, nor Chris C.B. It is Christ Jesus. It was an immaturity of mind and thinking that was still valuing the things of this world, that this world holds dear, that was affecting the Corinthian church. So they had not matured in Christ. How then does the next bit of the passage fit in with this? Well, here Paul focuses again on such a core issue in the Corinthian church, and he comes back to it again. We've already seen it twice, this following of leader, and he expands on this. Let's have a look. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. The Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labours. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field and God's building. So Paul here uses one of the big issues in the Corinthian church, this division of who they're following, to build on his argument about the need to grow up in thinking. You know, in the 1980s, there was a view that good leadership that dominated thinking in the world of business, which was that a great leader was a superhuman, charismatic individual one who went before everybody else, one who had such stature, such charisma, such intelligence that everyone else just went underneath him. Hierarchical leader with a charismatic figure at the top. A top-down way of thinking, and which was based on ability and the skills of the individual. And as Chrissy B has taught us recently, this worldly view of leadership was not dissimilar to what was causing this this division in the church. Who was the cleverest? Who was the brightest? Who had the best, best argument? Who, who was the most magnificent amongst men? 
which individual school of thought did they think was best? And you know what? Paul absolutely blows this idea of leadership out of the water in this passage. He absolutely obliterates it. Firstly, he obliterates the thought that man is at the centre of any good Christian work that we do in this life. He says, if you think about it rightly, we are only ever servants. Leaders only ever do a role on behalf of another, Jesus. Servants are not great and mighty in a household. They are low. Everything they have is given to them by the master of the house in which they serve. And everything they do is ultimately for the increase of his house. Paul here says, in light of Christ, leaders should be seen as such. Simply those who seek to serve Christ by doing the task that Christ has given them. This is mature thinking on the matter. But he also goes further than this to say that God is actually the power behind every fruit of the gospel in life. It's his skill. It's his power. He makes the seed grow. It's not ours. We're like the gardener and he is like the son. We can be as skillful as we want and we should be. But unless he is present, nothing good will truly grow. The ground will remain dry and arid. Maturity does not see the power and might as belonging with the man or the leader. It recognises that this can only come from God. And the field and the house actually belongs to him. Mature thinking recognises that Jesus is the centre of any good Christian leadership. He is the power and it all belongs to him. And men are just doing the tasks allotted to them. Secondly, he obliterates the thought that God just picks one super anointed, amazing individual at the top of a hierarchy. You know, Paul here has every right to claim superior gifting and status to other people and leaders, especially as the validity of his ministry is being attacked here. You know, he was uh, a scholar from Tarsus, a Roman citizen, a man whom God anointed with amazing power, saw wonderful signs and wonders. But he doesn't defend his ministry by saying, Oi, actually, I am the superhuman here. I'm the great anointed one. Just back down, everybody else. Follow me, not them. He says, instead, leadership is a collective thing, a team thing. He writes, leaders are co-workers in the service of Christ, where one sows and another waters on behalf of our master. Paul says that leaders are just placing individual pieces of the jigsaw down, and together they are painting and building a full picture of Christ. Paul's understanding leaves no room for placing one on a pedestal or leaving leaders the room to grow superior in their hearts because God uses a team of people 
a body of people to build his church, to plough his field, to tend to his house. You could quite easily replace these lovely pictures of three very handsome young men with anybody who has ever served in the Church of Christ, in Paul's thinking. Because we all just play a part. Not as super leaders, but as a team of servants. Co-working with those who have come before, those we work alongside, and those who will come after to build Christ's church. This is what to think maturely about Christian leadership is. Just men, women, saved by grace, held by grace, to do a job on behalf of another. You know, we've all got different backgrounds, haven't we? But in charismatic circles, we talk about, a lot about leadership as gifting. Gifting. Mighty, charismatic men doing mighty, charismatic deeds. Immensely gifted. And God gives gifts without a doubt to enable the work he has allotted to each one of us. But if we major on this as being the key to mature leadership, we are in danger of building the thing that Paul is knocking down here. And we miss two words that better describe Christian leadership, which aren't actually that exciting, but I think they better describe it, which is responsibility and accountability. Where leadership is simply where the master of the house gives responsibility for a task to something to someone and asks them to do it accountably to him on his behalf. So to some he has given responsibilities in workplaces, to some in marriage, to some in parent, to some in the parenthood, to some in the church, to all he has given ourselves the responsibility of leading our bodies and the things he's given us to steward there and our minds. And he asks us to do this accountably in relationship and on behalf of him. And here he calls the Corinthians to grow up in their thinking about leadership in this way. Exchanging worldly ideas that have separated them for heaven's ideas where Jesus is always the centrepiece, the master. Because if they had just got this sooner, if they just got this sooner, the division and strife that was suffering and demolishing the church wouldn't have been there. So in finishing, has your thinking grown up? <coughs> is your thinking growing up? Or have you stunted in some ways? Have you and do you daily seek to exchange worldly human thinking for heaven's higher upward perspective? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Meditating on the word of God Allowing the mighty sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the seat of all glory to change the way that you consider things, to change the way and the lens through which you see the world. Do you revel in the word and its ability to cut to your heart and transform your deepest places? Are you eating your daily bread? so that your spiritual life becomes strong? 
Or are you spiritually famished? Are you weak and young as you interact with this world? As you deal with this world's issues like conflict, failure, trial, joy, success. Do you live some of the greatest challenges of Jesus Christ? To love God with all your heart and to love others like yourself. To love your enemies and those who have harmed you and go the extra mile for them, turning the extra cheek. Do you still serve money, not God? Do you, which is one of the biggest things in the Bible, I think, transformative things, do you take the log out of your own eye before the speck out of your brother's? Or are you still a young Brainard in your conflicts with others? Speaking about what they've done wrong, criticising them, picking at the specks in their eyes, feeling self-righteous and justified. Do you take the log out? It's one of Jesus' teachings of your own eye before the speck out of your brothers. Paul here challenges the Corinthians. If they want to restore what they have lost, and this church, in this church, and live and grow with the light of the gospel, and if we want to protect the good thing that God has started here in Freedom Church and grow and keep growing, not falling into the pitfalls of the Corinthian church. Paul here says you must grow up in these matters. You must exchange man's approach for Christ's approach. Earth's wisdom for heaven's wisdom. And become like mature, smelly cheese in the things of Christ. That's it this morning. That's me. It's such a core challenge though, isn't it? Such a core challenge. I wonder, will you, will you stand with me if you want to mature in Christ more and the thinking of Christ? And I'll pray for those who stand.